I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 21st, 2015. Coming up, Dr. Steve Finney talks about nutrition, health, and performance. Are ketones the key? We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Most studies of the human microbiome have focused on westernized people with lifestyle practices that decrease microbial survival and transmission or on traditional societies that are currently in transition to westernization. Jose Clemente and his colleagues characterized the fecal, oral, and skin bacterial microbiome of members of an isolated Yanomami Amerindian village with no documented previous contact with western people. The Yanomami harbor a microbiome with the highest diversity of bacteria and genetic functions ever reported in a human group. Despite their isolation, which presumably has been for more than 11,000 years since their ancestors moved in South America, and that they have no known exposure to antibiotics, they harbor bacteria that carry functional antibiotic resistance genes. These results suggest that westernization significantly affects human microbiome. The antibiotic resistance genes are likely poised for mobilization and enrichment upon exposure to pharmacological levels of antibiotics. These findings emphasize the need for extensive characterization of the function of the microbiome in remote, non-westernized populations before globalization of modern practices affects potentially beneficial bacteria harbored in the human body. This research was published last week in Science Advances, a AAAS publication. The GPS sensors in smartphones could be used as part of a crowdsourcing system to issue early earthquake and tsunami warnings, scientists report in the April 10th issue of Science Advances. Combining data from hundreds of smartphones could lower the cost of earthquake early detection methods and potentially reduce deaths caused by medium to large sized earthquakes. While previous studies have investigated earthquake early warning systems based on scientific-grade GPS data, most regions at risk for earthquakes don't have the infrastructure needed to monitor earthquakes at this level. Consumer-quality GPS data collected by smartphones are less accurate than data collected by scientific-grade instruments, but could be used as a cheaper and easier way to issue warnings in areas without scientific-grade coverage. The study shows that a smartphone's ability to take continuous measurements of its location with GPS can be harnessed to detect and measure the large ground movement that occurs during an earthquake. This formation could be sent to a central server that could rapidly estimate earthquake magnitude. If enough smartphones were triggered by unusually large ground motion, a warning could be issued a few seconds before the strongest seismic waves from the earthquake began. How did the Earth's moon form? 
Studies in computer modeling, much of it performed by scientists here in Boulder, indicate the moon formed when the young Earth was hit by another large body, perhaps the size of Mars. That was hard enough to figure out, but then the question arises, when did that happen? A NASA-funded research team led by scientists of Southwest Research Institute here in Boulder and their colleagues published a paper last week in the journal Science, where they independently estimated the moon's age as slightly less than 4.5 billion years by analyzing impact-heated shock signatures found in stony meteorites originating from the main asteroid belt. They described that crash long ago between a large protoplanet and the proto-Earth as the inner solar system's biggest and most recently known collision. That impact ejected a cloud of debris that created a disk near Earth that eventually coalesced to form the moon. However, a significant fraction of the debris, several percent of an Earth mass, was flung out beyond the Earth-Moon system into distant orbits where they would bash asteroids in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. The researchers argue that numerous kilometer-sized fragments from that event struck those main belt asteroids at velocities exceeding 10 kilometers per second, enough to heat and degas the target rock. Such impacts produce roughly 1,000 times more highly heated material than do typical collisions among asteroids in the main belt. By modeling the evolution over time and fitting the results to ancient impact heating signatures in stony meteorites that have subsequently landed on the Earth, the scientists infer that the moon formed about 4.47 billion years ago, which is in agreement with previous estimates. You are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. The official nutrition policies for the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, and much of Colorado's institutional leaders in nutrition advocate a diet for Americans that is lower in fat and higher in carbohydrates. However, a growing body of scientific research demonstrates health benefits for many people with a diet that's lower in carbohydrates and higher in fats. In fact, some of this research indicates great therapeutic benefits. One reason why may be that when carbohydrate consumption is low enough, the body enters a state of nutritional ketosis, where is transforms fat into a molecule called beta-hydroxyl butyrate, or ketones. In the absence of sugar and carbs, the body can use ketones as its primary fuel. One of the scientists who has pioneered research into nutritional ketosis is also a medical doctor. His name is Steve Finney, and one of the populations who he believes gets special benefits from ketone-producing diet is endurance athletes. For 30 years, Finney has studied nutritional ketosis and athletic performance, including performance among bicycle racers, the winners of 100-mile ultramarathons, and recently, a two-person rowing team that was among the top finishers in a rowing race that went from California to the Hawaiian Islands, rowing the whole way on a very low-carb, high-fat, ketone-producing diet. 
Finney was recently in Denver for the Nutrition and Metabolism Symposium, where he was a keynote speaker. Up next, Finney talks with How on Earth's Shelley Schlender about one of his favorite studies regarding ketones, a study that indicates that, in addition to being a powerful fuel for the body, they can operate as an anti-inflammatory hormone. Steve Finney, what is one of the most intriguing pieces of research that you've seen in the last few years? One that came completely out of the blue was a paper in Science Magazine in December of 2012, so it's just a little over three years ago, where scientists who study gene expression and how the body internally regulates the activity of genes, what turns them on, what turns them off, discovered that when they stimulate an animal's genes with beta-hydroxybutyrate that increases the animal's defense against reactive oxygen species or oxidative stress. Could we say that this increases that little creature's maintenance and repair? Actually, it's preventative maintenance. If you quench reactive oxygen species before they damage tissue, you don't have to repair it. This is really intriguing because, you know, we've been told for 50 years now that antioxidants are extremely important for humans and and, and they reduce disease and improve well-being and function. What we didn't really understand was that we have our own internal antioxidant system that is very powerful. But when we eat enough carbohydrates to turn off those genes, they're not working. Well, but in these mice, those genes weren't necessarily turned off in an unusual way. Mice don't generally make ketones. Instead, they added something that's similar to ketones to the mice, and it helped them anyway. Yeah, they just used an artificial mechanism, a little pump, to pump ketones into the animals, and they got the same effect. But the implication of this and other research that's going on now is that the primary ketone that we have circulating in our blood called beta-hydroxybutyrate, which we know the brain uses for fuel, in place of, if not preferentially, to using blood glucose. And pretty much every other cell in the body that has mitochondria can use beta-hydroxybutyrate for fuel. So we've thought of it as a fuel molecule. Now it turns out it is a potent messenger. And I don't want to say drug, but it has a pharmaceutical-like effect. Or could we say it's like a neurotransmitter or a hormone, that it gives signals to the body so it's not just a food? Correct. But if we say, you know, it's a nutrient then people think, oh, tiny little effect. You might or might not notice something. This is a big effect. We now begin to realize that this internal defense mechanism is probably what has benefited the ultra runners who've discovered that a low-carb diet not only lets them maintain mental clarity to the finish line, but the next day they can get up and walk around and they're not super sore, and within a couple days they start training again. Typically, for ultra runners, distances 50 miles or beyond, they're off their training for anywhere from one to four weeks to allow recovery from all the muscle soreness and joint soreness that they get from running the ultra distances. And it may be that one of the many benefits of low carb, they just tell us, I recover so much faster, and that may be the prevention of damage during the event. Because we did the calculation. A male runner who runs 100 miles uses four kilograms of oxygen. The body consumes four kilograms of oxygen, eight pounds, to get to the finish line. Now, we tend to think of oxygen as a very good thing for us, but oxygen lets things burn. Almost all the oxygen that we consume burns fuel. But a small percentage of it, people say 2 3% of the oxygen we consume, 
escapes from the furnace, if you will, and damages our tissues. And those are called reactive oxygen species, ROS. We some, don't some, want those. Some people call them free radicals. That makes them sound more damaging. And so our defense against free radicals is extremely important. And that's why humans have learned to take antioxidants. I mean, why do people eat spinach or Brussels sprouts? There has to be some secondary gain because they aren't, you know, when you try to feed them to babies, they go, Bleh, you know, the natural instinct for that is to spit it out. But hundreds of generations of grandmothers have figured out that if you eat a high-carb agricultural diet, if you don't get antioxidants, you're going to do yourself damage. Why do people eat Brussels sprouts or spinach? Or, they contain a lot of phytonutrients that have antioxidant functions. Now, thousands of generations of grandmothers figured out you need that to avoid damage. They, you know, we didn't, we didn't figure out biochemically, just intuitively. Many of the hunting cultures that you and I have talked about before, the Maasai, the Aboriginal North Americans who followed the buffalo and didn't eat much in the way of gathered foods, and the Inuit discovered they didn't need them because if they ate a low-carb ketogenic diet, their antioxidants come from within. They don't have to come from outside. But it way back you, then. frees you from having to, eat, having to eat all that. All that icky vegetable mamby-pamby stuff. Now, on, on our diet that Jeff and I use, we use vegetables as a source of good nutrients and a, a way of getting good fats into the body. So I take a mixture of 50-50 butter and olive oil and add some garlic and basil and stuff that I make this slightly greenish, soft butter olive oil mix. And people love to eat that on steamed vegetables and I put it on fish. The vegetables become a, a route to get good fats into the body. So we add vegetables too. Well, but the Plains Indians did not say, let's have our antioxidants today by keeping ourselves in a ketogenic diet, somehow they were close enough to their sensing of their body, and they had enough time for their history to choose these things that were good for them anyway. People, particularly grandmothers, are excellent empiricists. Yeah. And the information is passed from generation for generation, and that's what culture is about. Culture is about figuring out what makes my group, my tribe, do well. When we look at butyrate or ketones or whatever we want to call them, can you get too many of them? Oh, yeah. If you're a type 1 diabetic and you don't have enough insulin, the liver makes too much, the blood levels go above 10 millimolar, and they are an organic acid. They're about as potent as an acid as vinegar. So, you know, you don't worry about dropping vinegar on your skin and having you burn you. No, but if you get too much of it built up on the body, it changes the pH, the acid-base balance of the body, and that leads to ketoacidosis. But that's 10 or above, whereas nutritional ketosis is 1 to 3. What about somebody in between? What if somebody always burns more ketones or they're spilling more ketones than it's not 10, but they're somewhere high? What about well, that? Well, someone in to who's on a total fast, total starvation, you know, and some, you know, protesters, people who want to show their commitment to a cause will go on a 30-day fast, oftentimes in public. Cesar Chavez, who organized the California grape workers, did that a number of times. It did him no lasting harm. Did he anybody measure his ketones? Typically, a, a human on total fast will have ketone levels of anywhere from 5 to 7 millimolar. Okay. So, again, anything under 10 is not going to do harm. Whether or not somebody has high sugar levels, anything over 10 could be dangerous. Correct. In people who have Alzheimer's, one of the possibilities for helping them has been a thought of giving them supplements that are high in medium-chain triglycerides, since that's 
basically pretty darn close to a ketone. Actually, medium-chain triglycerides, the fatty acids in, can't be stored in fat. That must be burned on a real-time basis. So if you take 300 calories, but you're only burning 100 calories an hour, what does the body do with that 300 calories? And the liver makes it into ketones. So an easy way to make your ketones go up is actually feed medium-chain fatty acids. So Three, they turn into ketones. When so you they turn, turn into ketones. Ketones have anti-inflammatory effects in the brain and also act as a fuel for the brain. And that can potentially benefit. All right, Steve Finney, you're saying that when somebody is given a supplement like medium-chain triglycerides, then your body will turn that into ketones. Why not, instead of having people be on a low-carb diet, why not let them have their cake and then add in ketones too? Um, there are people interested in that, either by feeding medium-chain fatty acids, medium-chain triglyceride, or the other alternative is just feed them ketones, either as esters or as salt. They don't the taste very good. They, they don't taste very good. And if you eat too much medium-chain fat, many people have a stomach upset effect from that. So getting a level in 1 to 3 millimolar is a struggle. And then you have to keep it there by continually consuming these things because their metabolic lifetime in the body is measured in hours, not days. Oh, so you have to just keep drinking those ketone shakes or, or those, those medium-chain medium chain fats. It's this bulletproof coffee trend with medium-chain uh, fat mixed with butter. I see that as an adjunct to carb restriction. I don't see it as replacing carb restriction. But I may be proven wrong on that. All right, so the possibility is that if somebody restricts their carbs, their body naturally is always adding more ketones on its own. Mm -hmm. And it's a steadier pace, and perhaps there's some other benefits as well. Do you suspect that there are? Mm -hmm. If somebody's making their own ketones instead of having them be added. Yeah, and one has to look at cost. I get my fat from sources like butter and olive oil. A thousand calories of olive oil, which is real olive oil, by the way, at my local Costco. I did the calculation, it's 47 cents for 1,000 calories. And if I turn 500 of that into ketones a day, those ketones cost me, what, 24 cents, 23 and a half cents? Show me anybody who's gonna sell you 500 calories worth of ketones to take as a supplement for that price. So a low carb diet, people say, oh, it's so hard. But if you wanna prevent Alzheimer's, you're gonna do it for 30 or 40 years. You're not gonna do it for a month or two. So I think we need to look at the sustainability of this kind of approach rather than being enamored by the fact that, oh, I can just take a shake and make that go up. Well. I hear you saying that what's intriguing to you is the idea that ketones can be that powerful. And you're more intrigued by this experiment about what it does for repairing the system or preventing damage than you are by saying, oh, let's make it easy and just drink them. You think that the information about the power of ketones is the important thing to focus on yes okay think of it as an automobile you know what do we use automobiles for well we transport people we transport luggage we put peace officers in them and they patrol our neighborhoods and keep us safe we race them for sport beta hydroxybutyrate is like an automobile it's turning out to have many different roles uh, it does many things for us it's not just a fuel for the brain anymore and it's something that occurs naturally within the body. It's not a foreign chemical that's imposed on the body. Having something which has this multitude of effects and demonstrated remarkable power at reversing conditions that we humans suffer from, we would be fools to ignore it just because it's not something endorsed by mainstream medicine. 
in your car analogy, you said give this car freedom to do all the things it can do. Is it your hunch that ketones have more room on the road if you keep carbohydrates out of the equation? that ketones added to a diet that's high in carbohydrate might not be as effective as ketones that are added to a diet that's low in carbohydrates so that leptin is low, insulin is low. What do you think? Correct. It's part of an orchestrated panoply of metabolic benefits that appear to have evolved over a billion years. And we humans who only started eating concentrated amounts of carbs, most of us, you know, our ancestors maybe 6,000 years ago, we would be foolish to ignore the accumulated wisdom of evolution for the previous roughly billion years, but certainly for the last two million years when we humans left the trees, left being herbivores, and began hunting. I've got one more question for you on this topic. Do you feel like it takes your willpower to eat the way that you do? Or do you think instead that you have enough vivid story behind the way that you eat and enough logic behind it that you kind of go, why would I want to eat any other way? Uh, Well, Shelley, you're implying that it's my personal resolve and knowledge that lets me do this. What I have discovered, and many people before and since have discovered, is when you take most of the carbs out of the diet, for those of us who are insulin resistant, we take ourselves off of a roller coaster ride of high insulin, low glucose, high glucose and insulin. So the flow of fuel is remarkably even throughout the day. What that does, it it takes away big surges of appetite. It takes away most cravings. So yesterday, I spent most of the day in the air flying around the country trying to get here. And I had a little bit of eggs for breakfast, eggs and sausage for breakfast. And I had a little airplane piece of tandoori chicken for dinner. And I got here to the hotel at 10 o'clock at night, and I didn't have to order from room service. I didn't feel compelled to do anything because I was really, I just went to bed. I got up this morning, I had a breakfast here, a light lunch. I'm way behind in calories in the last two days. Intellectually, I know that. And I know that within a few more days, my body's going to say, hey, Steve, you should start eating bigger portions. But I just don't have the compulsion to eat. And even when people offer me really delicious-looking things containing carbs, it's very easy to say no for two reasons. One is I don't feel compelled to eat it. And the other is after 10 years, carbs have begun to look to me kind of like styrofoam. Why would I eat styrofoam? It just does not have any appeal anymore. I have a very unctuous, savory, delicious diet, but I don't feel like I'm giving up something. I'm gaining a huge amount. I weigh 35 pounds less than I did 10 years ago. My fuel supply is is more consistent. I'm not plagued by thoughts of food when I miss a meal. The freedom it gives me is far, far greater than any benefit I would get from the short-term gratification of drinking a sugared beverage, whether it's orange juice or Coca-Cola, or eating something somebody calls a Danish that no one in Denmark would ever consider eating. Well, it sounds to me like you know how to live in the moment and appreciate how good it feels. But it doesn't hurt that you also have this wealth of data that you know about how it isn't a crazy way to eat. It's a way that has a long cultural tradition uh, for thousands and thousands of years. And it also is something that is good for you and that it's a cherishable state. If you do eat that donut or if you do drink that cola, you lose this precious state you're in. 
and I feel crummy for a couple of days. You know, if I weigh myself, which I don't do that much anymore, you know, if you eat a high carb meal and you reverse nutritional ketosis, a typical person gains three to four pounds. It's not three or four pounds of body fat from a 800 calorie meal, it's three or four pounds of water. If you feel like the Michelin man or the Michelin woman, you wake up in the morning, it's just, you know, I'm just pudged because of the fluid retention associated by eating that Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. Steve Finney is a scientist and medical doctor who is one of the world's experts on low-carb, high-fat nutritional ketosis. His books include The Art and Science of Low-Carb Living, and he was recently featured in a documentary about athletic performance called Serial Killers 2, Run on Fat. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from John Lennon. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.